It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to the latest episode of Talking France. This is the last episode in the current series, but thanks to a growing number of listeners, especially those who have shown their appreciation by becoming a member, we should be back in a couple of weeks with more info, insight and discussions on the big issues in France. But for this week, we have another jam-packed show starting, as we must, with the upcoming French Revolution. Well, okay, I might be overstating it a bit, but we'll find out what our team thinks will happen next after months of protests and strikes in France. Is Macron a lame duck? Are the strikes over? And are we heading for a sixth republic? And what does that even mean? We'll also discuss the one thing you need to check before you move to rural France and look at the ways that living in France will change your habits and lifestyle, from the food you eat to the way you dress and perhaps even the way you drive. And if you like music, we'll hear about the tradition of chanson francais and lay out what you really need to know before you move to Paris to avoid la belle vie becoming a nightmare, as happened to one American couple recently. I'm your host, Ben McPartland, and I'll be joined by... Well, this week, guys, introduce yourselves. Come on. Hello, I'm Emma. I'm editor of The Local France. Hi, I'm Jen. I'm the journalist for The Local France. Thanks for being with us once again, Emma and Jen. And we'll also be joined, of course, by our political columnist, John Litchfield. Right, Emma, Jen, as ever between these podcasts, a lot happens in France with pension reform, strikes, protests. It's been another action-packed week. Emma, bring us up to date. It really has. One thing I love about France, it's never dull. So in the last week, we have had the Constitutional Council has approved the pension reform. There were a few minor tweaks, but basically it was approved. The reform was then immediately signed into law. And the government's reiterating that it intends to have it come into force on September 1st. So what that means is that from September, the pension age will gradually increase for most people from 62 to 64 by 2023. The evening of the Constitutional Council decision, which was a Friday, we again saw protests, clashes, a bit of bin arson in some of the French cities, including Paris, Rennes and Nantes. And then on Monday evening, Emmanuel Macron gave a speech to the French people in which he kind of tried to draw a line under pension protests and move on to what he wants to do with the rest of his four-year term. Yes, now Macron, uh, he likes a primetime speech. He's made quite a few in recent years. 15 million tuned in on Monday night. To put that in context, 24 million watched the dramatic World Cup final between France and Argentina. The French public really do listen to what their president had to say. Emma, what did Macron have to say this time? Well, He didn't really have much to say, actually. His speech was very short, just 13 minutes. That's close to a record of brevity for Macron, who, I must say, is not known for his short speeches. But what was most striking to me was that he really didn't say anything new. And I also felt like we were missing quite a lot of the sort of rhetorical flourishes that tend to distinguish Macron when he's in full flow. Honestly, it felt like a fairly half-hearted effort to me. But then there were protesters who were on the street before he'd even started. So really, it probably wasn't going to make much difference what he actually said. In Paris, several areas held what they called uh, Concert des Casseroles, which is a a concert of saucepans. Basically, people banging saucepans in the street from 8pm, which is when the speech went out. And the idea of that was kind of saying, look, Macron hasn't listened to the people, so we won't listen to him. We'll make this 
cacophony of noise and drown him out. On the pension reform itself, what he actually said was, has this reform been accepted? Obviously not. And despite months of consultation, no consensus could be found and I regret it. But while he might have regretted it, he still said that he still believes this reform is necessary to balance the books as France's population ages and he will be carrying on with it. He then moved on quite quickly and he kind of laid out the three pathways that the government will be taking next. And they are work, justice and the rule of law and social protections. But again, he didn't actually announce anything on these. He just kind of reiterated some promises that have been made before, like extra police offices, tightening up illegal immigration. But he did add that ministers and the prime ministers will be kind of presenting their ideas over the next 100 days. So I guess we'll see. And he wants some kind of report back by July the 14th. Bastide Day, is that right? Yes, that's right. And what's this weird theory going around, Emma, about Bastide Day? Something with numbers? Uh, yeah, I think it's a joke. Uh, maybe some people take it seriously, but you'll see it on graffiti and also protest signs, which is the 64, the new retirement age, minus yeah. 49.3, the name of the constitutional article, right. equals 14.7, Ooh. which in date form is the 14th of July, which was the date the French Revolution started. So it's a prediction of a new revolution in France. Oh, right. OK, we'll hear what John Litchfield has to say about that shortly. Um, following this speech, images or videos have also emerged of Macron going for a sing-song around Paris. What's this? <laughs> yeah, that's right. This was a particularly weird video that emerged a couple of days later. Basically, it seems that in the evening of Monday, the president and his wife Brigitte went for a bit of a walk around Paris, as they do sometimes. They happened upon a group of young people who were singing traditional French songs, and Macron joined in, and he sang a song called La Refuge, which is a very traditional French song about a mountain lodge in the Pyrenees. And, I mean, this was Monday night. There were, as I said, there There were protests. protests going on at this Exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, there were genuinely people in the street calling for him to be executed, and he was just, like, going for a walk and having a a song. Say what you like about the man, he has courage. Yeah, but he got lucky that he bumped into a bunch of choir boys and not, you know, the protesters. Not the protesters, yeah. I mean, in the video, his security did look quite nervous, it must be said. Now, look, this all kicked off in mid-January with a protest and strike. We're now edging towards May. Listeners will be wanting to know what's going to happen next, Emma. Well, yeah, I mean, Macron was sort of trying to draw a line under this, but I think judging by the protests, it is safe to say that this issue certainly isn't dead and buried. However, we haven't had any announcements of further strikes from the Antisyndicale, which is the, the group that represent all eight unions. What we've had instead is some announcement of strikes from individual unions, including rail unions. So we might see a bit of disruption, but it's likely to be much less than it was when all of the unions are acting together now that this is kind of splintered into like smaller actions from individual unions. I think the next big date on the calendar is probably May 1st. May Day is traditionally a day for marches and demos in France anyway, but the unions kind of want to make this into a, a day of anger over right. pension reform. So I think it might be quite lively in the big cities in France on May 1st. Indeed. I think this is the perfect time to bring in our political columnist, John Litchfield. In John's column this week, he mentioned that there was a whiff of revolution in the air in France. I asked John exactly what he meant by that and what this all means for Macron and the rest of his presidency. Well, you know, from this three months now that these protests have been going on, and I and many other people, and Macron himself, I think, have been... I've tended to think, oh, this is just France being its normal self, you know, that it always calls for reforms and then refuses reforms it's offered. And this is just a normal process. You know, we've seen this before under Hollande, under Sarkozy, under Chirac. 
And therefore, you know, once it goes through, people will settle down. They'll be kind of grumpy, but it, it'll all go away. But it seems to me it has gone into a kind of different dimension this time. There is a kind of, you know, I use the word hysterical in the column, but it, it, there is a strange sense that this is a different occasion. And that there is, this has become, as other people have suggested, not just a protest against pension reform, but almost a protest about the way the system works, since people have their voices not being heard. 70% of people against pension reform, Macron is nevertheless, even though he doesn't have a majority in the parliament, able constitutionally, as the council, Constitutional Council decided last week, to push through the reform anyway. So this might be a big moment in attempts a sense of younger French people who don't really understand the Fifth Republic constitution, and looking at it now for the first time, maybe realise that it is only a semi-democratic constitution in a way, gives really quite strong powers to the president and fewer powers to parliament and the voice of the people. So maybe we are at a moment of regime crisis, of democratic crisis, as, as various people are saying. It remains to be seen. I think that this will leave uh, traces more than the previous conflicts between governments and people have done. It's a modest reform. Why this should have caused such a sort of psychodrama is another question which we've addressed before. But I think it has moved into a different phase. And John, just on this question of potential change, we're talking about you know this this possibility of people talking about a sixth republic. Can you see any fundamental change coming in the way France has run politically? We see that, that that's what is difficult to square. Really, that France sort of objects to all this, but moving to a system where there are more direct referendums, as the Gilets Jaunes and others have been called for a, a government by the people directly from their own kitchen tables, like the Gilets Jaunes were calling for, is you know is just not possible. And you just look at the Gilets Jaunes and saw they couldn't even agree. Three Gilets Jaunes together had three different op- opinions on things. Mm. So you do need, as in, a, in a very contentious, quarrelsome country like France, you perhaps do need a strong executive. So the mood for change is there, but not really any clear idea of what that change would be or how it could come about. Mm. So that is in itself, I think, a rather dangerous situation for the next two or three years. Mm. And we can talk maybe another time about to what extent mm. that means that Marine Le Pen is going to benefit in 27. Myself, still not convinced of that, but you know, she is riding high in the polls mysteriously in a way, because she's done very little on the pension reform, done very little on anything. But she has the advantage of being kind of opposition leader number one in people's ideas. She's the anti-Macron in people's minds, and therefore she benefits when when the government, um, as people see it, tries to push one over them and, and screws up. So that may well change in the next three or four years. So I think it's difficult to see where, where France could go and where France could change. It needs perhaps a bigger crisis than we have now, but we're heading into a kind of a moment where the country will have to start to think about these things maybe in the next yeah. year or so. Jen, as John mentioned there in his analysis, there has been a lot of talk in France about the need to start a sixth republic and get rid of the fifth one that we're in now. What are they actually talking about and what would need to happen here, Jen? So they're talking about the fact that France has in the past voted to change republics, basically regimes, which gave the whole country a new constitution and approach to its own institutions. Some people think it's time for this to happen again. Now, France has had five republics over its history. We're currently in the fifth one. And usually, changing from one to another has happened during a time of serious social unrest, revolution, or war. Most recently, in 1958, the Fifth Republic, which we're in now, was set up by Charles de Gaulle and was supported in a referendum. While this was a peaceful transition from the Fourth to Fifth Republic, there was a referendum vote. 80% of the voters supported entering the new Fifth Republic. It is worth noting that this period in French history was very tumultuous. France had just come out of World War II. There were decolonization movements happening across its former empire, and there was a war in Algeria. Okay, so we're in the Fifth Republic. Why are people calling for it to be replaced? 
Well, the key thing is that the Fifth Republic's constitution gives a lot of power to the president at the expense of parliament. Now, historians believe that de Gaulle was not only influenced by the Fourth Republic's failures, but also the failure of the Third Republic in 1940, which saw the fall of France and the occupation by the Nazis. Now, the Fifth Republic basically made it so that the president would have huge influence over foreign policy, national security, the power to dissolve the National Assembly, the power to appoint and dismiss most cabinet officials, including the prime minister, which was a big change from the Fourth Republic, which had a less strong executive. Okay, so imagine we get a Sixth Republic, Jen. What would that look like? Well, in 2022, left-wing France Insoumise leader Jean-Luc Mélenchon actually campaigned on the idea that the Fifth Republic has run its course and now it's time for the country to inaugurate its Sixth Republic, one that would give less power to the executive. Now, his ideas didn't gain a ton of traction during the election campaign, but they do seem like they're picking up a bit more of support now. And some of his ideas included like getting rid of Article 49.3, which we've all heard a lot about in recent weeks, and that allows the president to bypass parliament, uh, requiring a referendum on any constitutional change or the signing of a new treaty, a citizens initiative referendum, or RIC, which was actually re- requested by the Yellow Vest movement. And this would allow people to gather signatures and propose or repeal laws, or to modify the constitution, or to even dismiss elected officials. Now, not everyone calling for the Sixth Republic wants exactly what Mélenchon has described on his website, but most tend to support repealing some powers of the president and moving toward a less centralized system of government. Thanks, Emma. Thanks, Jen. Like you both said, the next 100 days promise to be interesting in France right up to July 14th. Moving on now, Emma, a young lady, has been in the headlines in France in recent days. She's called Lazara. Can you tell us a bit more about her, why she's been in the news and what she has to do with the tradition of la chanson française? Yes, I can. She is France's Eurovision entry for the Eurovision Song Contest, which is to be held in a few weeks. And the reason she's in the news is it seems like her participation might be in doubt after she abruptly cancelled one of the pre-Eurovision events over the weekend, citing personal problems. So we'll see. Her song is called Evidemment. Personally, I don't think it's one of the strongest entries this year, but what it is, is very, very French. It's kind of a modern take on the very classic French chanson tradition. Chanson in French literally just means song, and it can be used to refer to any type of song. But when we talk about la chanson française, it's its own very distinct style of music. And the most famous person to do this, of course, is Edith Piaf. Okay, tell us a bit more about la chanson française, Emma. I know nothing about it. I'm okay. intrigued. You'll have heard a song by Edith Piaf. Uh-huh, I've heard of Edith, yes. Edith yeah. Yes, Je ne, re- Je ne regrette rien. Oh, yeah. Uh, La vie en rose. Yep, all her big things. But when you think about the, the classic chanson singers like Edith Piaf, probably the first thing you notice about their music is that you can very clearly hear every word that they're singing. The music is kind of more in the background. And this is really the main thing that defines a chanson song. It's all about the words. But the saying goes that French music prioritises the words over the music, while English language pop tends to focus on the tune over the lyrics. And in fact, rock and roll was first referred to in France as yeah, yeah music because of the tendency that a lot of rock songs have to have like a really great tune, but lyrics and choruses that don't really mean very much like yeah, yeah, la, la, na, 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 stuff like that. For example, the Beatles song, She Loves You, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, That's yes. probably one of the songs that has a lot to blame. Tell us where this came from, this uh, tradition, Emma. Well, chanson as we know it, it kind of began in cabarets in the 19th century. Um, it was songs that were quite often focused on social issues. 
But it really reached its heyday in the sort of interwar and immediate post-war period with singers like Edith Piaf and Charles Aznavour. In the 60s, we kind of still see it. By that time, it was facing quite stiff competition from US stars like Elvis Presley and by French singers who were kind of imitating Presley, like most famously Johnny Hallyday, of course. But it reinvented itself then as La Nouvelle Chanson, New Chanson. And that's when we get stars like Serge Gainsbourg, who you've probably heard of, Jacques Brel, Francois Hardy, Jacques Dutronc, France Gall. And these are sort of, again, sort of the real heyday of, of the movement. I think today you've still got plenty of modern recording artists who do sing in this sort of traditional chanson style, like Lazara, who we just talked about, and actually France's 2021 Eurovision entry, a lady called Barbara Pravi, who also had a very classic style of French song. But it's fair to say it's more of a, a minority genre these days. The biggest selling musical genre in France is another one that focuses very heavily on words, and that's rap. Rap is absolutely huge in France, Emma. It really surprised me when I first moved here, just how popular it is. Yeah, it is. It's the biggest selling musical genre in France by a long way. And in yeah. fact, France itself is the second biggest rap and hip hop market in the world after the mm, US. Interesting. But yeah, I mean, I find it interesting because, again, it is a, a genre that very much has the, the words in the focus. Mm. So it actually does link to the sort of classic French chanson tradition. And what we also see now is some artists who kind of blend the old style chanson with the newer rap style to create songs where the words are still very much in the foreground and which also touch on social issues as the traditional chanson did. And I think, you know, the, the biggest name, undoubtedly, in this genre is Tromay. He's actually Belgian, but he sings in French. He's France's biggest selling artist, and he's very much in this mixed style. Now, is it true you've put together a little Spotify playlist under the title The Locals Chanson Francais that the listeners can search for? Tell us about a couple of singers who appear on this playlist that people might want to check out. I have, yes. I had a lot of fun putting together this playlist and discovering a few new artists. Because the other thing about this style of song is it's great if you're learning French, because mm. the words are really really, really clear. You get to hear the pronunciation, you can kind of understand what uh, what people are saying. So it, actually, it's a great language learning tool. But you know, it's it's fun as well. I figured I, I put on the playlist, I put Edith Piaf and Serge Gainsbourg, but I figured that most people will have heard of those two. But some you might not have heard of is Jacques Brel. He's another Belgian one, actually, but sings in French. I've heard of him. Just tell us a bit about him. You might have actually heard a lot of his songs without knowing them, because a lot of singers in the 60s did English language covers of his big hits, including Scott Walker, Frank Sinatra, Andy Williams, Dusty Springfield, Nina Simone, loads. Probably his most famous is La Chanson du Jackie, which is quite up-tempo and fun. But for me, absolutely the best is Ne Me Quitte Pas. It's brilliant. It's been covered in English as If You Go Away, but the original is definitely better, way more intense, sadder, yearning, beautiful. Okay, fair enough. The other one you might want to check out is uh, Barbara. Barbara? Barbara, yeah, Barbara. Okay, tell us more about um, Barbara. She's very traditional. Uh, her songs get used a lot for soundtracks, so you might have heard her without knowing it. I think her most famous one is L'Aigle Noir, uh, The Black Eagle, which is lovely, lyrical, very much a, a sing-along one. I think you probably will have heard that once you click on the playlist. Okay, and you mentioned Stromae, one of the huge artists in France. Just tell us a bit more about Stromae. Yeah, I mean, he's not really a classic chanson singer. He started out as a rapper, but I think you can really hear the connection with the chanson tradition on his work, so that's why I've put him in here, especially in his most recent album, Multitude, which came out last year. He's currently France's biggest selling artist. If you listen to French radio at any point during 2021 or 2022, you will almost certainly have heard Santé, which is his tribute to the sort of unsung heroes who worked in the background during the pandemic. Fantastic, Emma, and well worth checking out on Spotify, the locals' Chanson Francais. Have a search. 
Now, the one thing people say you really need to check out before you move to a place in rural France is the internet and the quality of the internet because, Jen, it really does vary depending on where you are in France. Is that still the case? Yeah, there are parts of France that still don't have very high-speed internet and they tend to be more rural parts of the country. And we're talking about it actually this week because there was a recent study by the consumer group UFC, Couchoisir, that found that about one in five French households still don't have access to this very high-speed internet. Now, when I say very high-speed internet, I mean internet that is faster than 30 megabits per second, which is about the broadband speed that you would need to stream a high-resolution movie or download a movie or watch something on Netflix, for example. Usually that requires about 25 megabits, but basically the same thing. Okay, now 92% of the population in France has access to the internet, but not this quality high-speed internet that you're talking about, Jen, that you might get with a, a fibre connection. What did the study conclude about certain parts of France? Well, ultimately, the study found that parts of rural France are the least likely to have this very high-speed internet via fiber, even though the French government has made it a long-standing goal since 2013 to equip all households with very high-speed internet by the end of 2022. Now, part of the issue is that several parts of rural France are connected to the internet with these, quote, second-rate technologies, as the study puts it. These might be fixed 4G, THD radio, and satellite, which are slower than fiber optics. Now, the government's goal is to spread fiber across the country by 2025, but according to UFC Couchoisir, that hasn't happened yet. The three mainland départements with the highest proportion of their population without access to this very high-speed internet were Ardèche in southeast France, with 53% of people not having access to the very high-speed internet, Côte d'Armor in Brittany with 52%, and Savoie in southeast France in the mountains with 47.2%. So that's a lot. In comparison, less than 1% of the population in Paris did not have access to this very high-speed internet. And because of all of this, UFC Couchoisir is calling for the government to make a law requiring that everyone have the right to access very high-speed internet, and they want to make it enforceable. So basically, there would be some sort of minimal threshold that the household's internet connection must go above a certain megabit threshold in speed. Wow. Now, things have improved in recent years. The government's made a big effort, although I do remember during um, the famous lockdown, speaking to a couple of Parisians who fled to rural France to avoid being in Paris and got there and found that they're uh, planning to work, obviously, from down there and found that they had no internet and couldn't even get 4G. So I just basically have to take a couple of months off work. Great. Thanks, Jen. Now, moving on, one of the big topics of discussion among foreign residents living in France is how a move to the country has changed you, whether it's habits or lifestyle or quality of life or even how you dress. Emma, start us off. Does moving to France, living in France change you? Yes, I think it does. I think most people who've been here for a while would say that uh, certain habits have changed through living in France. And, and of course, the change does depend a bit on where you've moved from. But we did a survey of readers of the local. We got some really great responses. And I think you can pretty much break them down into four main areas. There's lifestyle habits like eating, drinking, exercising. There's sort of philosophy of life to do with work-life balance and how you conduct your life. There's manners such as greetings. Most people mention that they'll gain some pretty ninja admin skills, but perhaps also lose some of their English language skills, bizarrely enough, especially if you're conducting most of your daily life in French. Right, start us off then. Lifestyle habits, you know, eating, drinking, such a huge part of French culture. How do they change? Yeah, I, mean, I think this is probably the easiest change to spot, and it's one that most people do tend to notice. France does have this world-renowned gastronomy, but it also has a very strong culture around food and drink. And so a lot of people told us that they've started to eat better. They've started making proper meals, using fresh produce from the markets. People maybe snack less. They take their time 
came to have lunch and they've also you know developed a taste for classic French dishes so when we did the survey uh, Alison who lived in Burgundy she said I've started having proper lunch every day I discuss the taste of everything we eat we buy bread every day so you know quite a change in habits there in parallel to, to food, of course, there is wine. And while a lot of people obviously enjoy discovering, sort of learning more about French wine, a lot of people, and I think this is particularly pronounced among Brits, it must be said, a lot of people said they were also influenced by the French culture of more moderate drinking and they now drink less, but they take the time to sip and taste their wine rather than just hurling it down like it's going out of fashion. Mm. And it seems that in general, living in France might be quite good for your health because along with drinking less and eating more fresh food, a lot of people told us they were more active in France. I think this was a especially pronounced among Americans who live in the cities who really love how walkable French cities are and how they're spending less time in a car, more time walking or cycling. One of our readers, David, who's American who lives in Metz, he said, yep, I drink more wine, I buy bread only at the bakery, not the supermarket, I cook much more often here, I check the food, which in the USA I never did. He sort of concluded that France gave me the habit of being conscious of me, of acknowledging the importance of health and caring for myself. Mm, very interesting. It does, of course, much depends on, like you've said, where you come from and kind of what your habits were originally. This brings us nicely onto quality of life. It's something that really associate with France and people who move here. Talk about an improvement in quality of life, whether it's holidays, lunch breaks. Emma, how does things change here? Yeah, definitely. Like you said, I mean, this is often given as like one of the main reasons that people move to France. For me, this one takes a little bit of unpicking because it's quite common for people to retire to France. And quite often people swap a city life for a French village. And of course, those are more relaxed, but you're not really comparing like with like there. Mm. But even among people who are working in France, plenty of people told us that they appreciate the more relaxed pace of life. And this real emphasis on maintaining a balance between work and life, between making time for family, making time for cultural activities. Paul, our reader who lives in the southwest, he says, you know, he used to be in eternal rush, he was running around all the time, but now he's much more relaxed with time. I think for Americans in particular, the amount of holiday that French workers get is always quite mind-blowing, but in fact the generous public holidays were listed by a lot of people as their favourite thing. And I think more intangibly, there's just this sense that People don't define themselves by work and that your job is not the most important thing in your life in France. Yeah, one of the things that you notice perhaps um, in the big cities is how many French workers actually go out on mass to eat lunch in restaurants. It obviously helps that they often get restaurant vouchers, you know, paid partly by the company. But um, there really is a, the lunch culture is not a myth, is it? They really do take more time over lunch. Oh, yeah, totally. Whereas we're yeah. sat here scoffing sandwiches at our desk, dropping crumbs into our keyboards, etc. But there's definitely a, a culture difference there, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like our, our French colleagues very much judge us when they catch us so bolting yeah. a sandwich at our desks. Now, what about bad habits that people might pick up, Emma? I know a couple of readers have talked about, you know, becoming maybe slightly more moody, maybe arguing with members of the public, you know in Paris perhaps more than elsewhere or perhaps developing a habit of being able to complain a lot more which is maybe unknown with the French and I, I like this quote from one reader who talked about their driving habits having changed uh, she said I haven't bothered using indicators for years now and I'm perfectly happy to cut people up on the road she's obviously having a dig at French drivers so you know <laughs> we must stress perhaps not everyone changes in a positive way but what about you know politeness you know you know drivers in France perhaps not known for it but do people's manners change in a good sense when they move to France, do you think? Uh, yes, a lot of people told us that they did. Um, for, I think for a lot of Anglophones, they find France is a relatively formal country, especially in the manner of greeting people. So like Lindsay and Seniman said, my new habit is saying bonjour all the time, every place, everyone. And I think a lot of people find that when they first move, that you know your mind is quite blown by how often you're expected to say bonjour in the course of a normal day, that, that basically every interaction you have starts with a bonjour. But after a while, it starts to feel quite normal. You find 
yourself greeting everyone. And then when you go back to your home country, you find yourself sort of giving these more formal greetings and then just people think you're weird or a bit, a bit over formal. Mm. Um, and, you know, you do get quite used to this sort of formal style of expression. I got an email recently from my bank in the UK that just started, hey, Emma, and I was actually quite outraged about it. I was like, well, that's Madame Pearson to you. Thank you very much. And where is my bonjour? I thought this was uh, this was terrible and very slack. And they didn't even give me their most distinguished salutations at the end of the email. It's just an outrage. Now, talking about language, one of the good things, or hopefully when you move to France, is that your French will improve. But I think, you know, your native language, and obviously for us it's English, can actually take a hit. It can get worse, no? Yeah, a lot of people had told us that if they're using French every day, so like people who are working in a a French-speaking environment or people who are, you know, living with a partner where they're speaking French at home, a lot of people told us that it's not that they forget how to speak English, obviously, but their English just starts to take on a slightly weird quality where they either start slipping in random French words... Or they start to literally translate French words or terms into English. So you end up with this sort of weird franglais mix that really only makes sense to to other Mm. English speakers in France. I think this is definitely true. When I was researching this, I looked back through some of my chat conversations and I found these examples. Someone said, they will precise it at 16 hours. Right, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> well, the French uh, préciser, préciser. Uh, means like to clarify something. Okay, yeah. Um, and of course, we're we're on military time here in France, so instead of saying 4pm, they would yeah. say like 16h. Yeah. Someone told me when I was supposed to be meeting them for a drink, the metro is perturbed, so I'm going to vel a bit. <laughs> yeah, go on, perturbed, obviously, yeah. we can get that one. Uh, it's a disruption, but I'm going to vel a bit. I'm going to use a velib. Yeah. yeah, so I'm going to take the, yeah, take the bike. bike, use the bike, share yeah. use a bike okay. Yeah. And finally, this was another one I saw on a on a group chat with someone saying you need to send your rib to Emily. Yeah, I love that. Sending your rib to Emily. What does that actually mean? <laughs> well, your your rib uh, R I B is like your bank details, and Emily is the public health insurance. So it's nothing to do with the body part or to do with the French film Emily. It just means you need to send your bank details to the health insurance. Of course, yeah, I love it when someone asks you for your rib. Jen, I'm going to put you on the spot now. Have you changed? since you've been in France? I definitely walk a lot more like the other Americans that responded to the survey. And that's something that I really appreciate. I feel like healthier walking more than I used to in the US. And it actually has become really like apparent to me when my American friends visit because I'll say to them, oh, it's just a 30 or 40 minute walk. It's not so far. And then they look at me with this really blank expression like you're expecting me to walk 30 or 40 minutes now. I mean, to be fair, the US is not super pedestrian friendly and a lot of rural and suburban places, it's just not possible to walk to the grocery store. But I do think that my tolerance for long walking distances has grown a lot. I think maybe I also dress a little differently. I think that maybe I go for more neutral color tones or I don't know, right now I'm wearing yellow, so that maybe doesn't count. But personally, the biggest switch for me has been avoiding athleisure, so not wearing leggings or sweatpants outside of the house or outside of the gym. Mm, When I go home, people often comment how uh, I look far more suave than I used to when I lived in England, (laughs) and I've become much more of an intellectual and a deep thinker. So I think I've definitely... Why are you laughing? I find it hard to believe how, how you were like in all England right, if right, this is right. your intellectual side. Okay, I think probably the main thing for me is, is discovering the half pint, the dummy, you know, much to the disgust of my British friends, you know, ordering a half pint, completely normal in France, it's okay. Yeah, you know, obviously the British culture is to have a pint. I get stick for that all the time. But, you know, food and drink, huge, Emma, the changes in culture. I think, like, 
drinking black coffee, you know, instead of huge lattes that you probably had back home. But what about you? Any kind of culture changes? Uh, yeah, it's it's what you said. It's, I, drink, I, it's drink, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, this is maybe something more to do with the problematic drinking culture yeah. in the UK. Yeah. But I drink a lot less in France. Like if I go out for an evening without four or five friends, we'll get a bottle of wine and that's it. So that's like a glass and a half per person. Yeah. Um, and that'll last us the evening and we'll sit and we'll chat and we'll, we'll have a very nice night. And, that's and we'll it. also have food, no? I mean, when the French go out, it has to involve food. The idea of just going out and drinking all night is just like, they just think you're mad. But yes, lots of ways in which you can change uh, when you come to France. And don't forget, there's an article on our website that discusses all of those possible ways at thelocal.fr. Now, moving to Paris can come with a lot of surprises and some disappointments. Recently, the New York Post published the story of two American retirees who were met with a lot of unfortunate surprises after moving to Paris. They aren't the only ones who feel this way, though. There's even a name for it, Paris Syndrome, the feeling of disillusionment when foreigners, whether tourists or people who move here, find out that it is, in fact, a modern capital city with its downsides, crime, graffiti, poverty, perhaps the odd rude waiter or language barrier, just like every other foreign capital. Jen, tell us, what are the things that people perhaps should know before they move to Paris? Well, there are a lot of things to be aware of before moving to Paris. And I think that because the city's so romanticized and in a lot of movies and TV shows, it seems like people can move here and it's all rainbows and butterflies. But in reality, it's it's quite difficult for a lot of people. The first thing to be aware of is that apartments tend to be small, expensive and time consuming to find. Paris has a housing shortage and you see that play out in a lot of different ways. So if you're moving on a budget and you're trying to rent a place without the help of a relocation firm, then you can count on sending your dossier to plenty of different landlords with no reply and waiting for long lines with apartment visits, you know, 50 other people in the line with you. That happened to me once. And it's definitely not as easy of a process as you might expect. (laughs) Now, the average apartment size in Paris is, what, 46 metres squared, Jen? And for that, you can expect to pay up to maybe 2,000 euros a month. And while it's illegal to rent out an apartment for less than that's less than 12 metres squared, plenty of landlords try to do this and desperate tenants do pay. Yeah, and the other thing to be aware of, especially for my fellow Americans, is that your apartment might be on the sixth floor and it might be on the sixth floor without an elevator. It's also not guaranteed that you'll have air conditioning. And Good point. Par- yeah. yeah, Paris gets really hot in the summer. I Honestly, I remember the shock of the sixth floor walk-up. After I moved to France, my mom helped me and together we were struggling to carry these giant suitcases and my cat up to the top floor of this old Hosmanian building. But even if you're just visiting and you want general amenities like a washing machine, dishwasher, AC, elevator, then you need to specify this requirement in the Airbnb search you cannot assume that any of these things will be available. The next thing is paperwork. If you move to France, you'll find that the French love administrative processes. They're time consuming and they're necessary for pretty much every aspect of your life in France, from your entry residency permit to health insurance to that dreaded apartment application, the dossier. Okay, now the next one might sound a bit obvious, but you know, some people are surprised by this, given that Paris is a multicultural capital city, but people really need to know that it is quite difficult to get by without a certain level of French, yeah? Yeah, I mean, like you said, Paris is a cosmopolitan city. There are plenty of people who speak English, but you're going to need some level of French to get through daily life. It's okay if you don't know that much, and it's okay if you're coming here and you want to learn more, but it's best to really make a habit of continuing to improve and learn French while you're here. You know, you shouldn't walk up to someone and just expect them to be able to speak English. They might not be able to. 
And finally, uh, you should probably expect to be a little bit lonely. Moving to any big city is really hard in the beginning, and Paris is not different from that. It's going to take you time to build your social life, and there are actual cultural differences between how Parisians socialize and what you might have been used to in your home country. Uh, for example, I remember wanting to find a rec volleyball team to just join and meet people around my neighborhood, and that's not really much of a thing here. People tend to socialize more in cafes rather than by joining a sports team or hanging out at each other's homes. Actually, you're probably not going to get invited right away to your Parisian co-worker's house. They might not be inviting you to a barbecue anytime soon, unfortunately, because the space is small and people tend to hang out more in cafes and restaurants. But that being said, if you're willing to put some time and energy in, you're going to find the people that make Paris feel like home for you. It's just might not be as immediate as it is in the movies. Well said, Jen. All right, guys, any tips or life hacks for people who move to Paris who might be struggling? Emma? Two tips, really. One is that, like Jen says, it is not the easiest city to make friends in. But one cultural thing is that it's perfectly acceptable to go to a cafe with a good book and just spend like a couple of hours on your own. Like no one will think that you're like, weird or sad if you do that. So that's a nice thing to do when you first arrive and you don't really know any people. Emma's got no friends, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jen, Emma, you have loads of friends. Carry on. I still go to cafes on my own all the time. Yeah, I, I think it's such well. a nice thing to do. You're right. Um, and the other thing uh, that you can fill your time with is Free Museum Sunday. On the first Sunday of the month, pretty much all of the museums in Paris are free. They're the, the state-run ones, so it's not everything, but it's the big ones like the, the Louvre and the Dorsey people, people like that. And it's uh, it's a great way to you know sort of get to work, get to know a bit about the city, have some culture and uh, save yourself some money. Okay, Jen? Well, my trick is actually also a bit more about your social life and just staying healthy, staying fit when you first move. I didn't really go to the pool that often, especially in the wintertime when I was in the US. Talk but, about a swimming pool, Jen? Yeah, the swimming pool. But Paris has tons of them. There's so many municipal pools. They're actually quite affordable. They're around three euros entry. You might have a discount if you're under the age of 26 too. And you can actually, if you pay for an abonnement, uh, which your pool might offer, it's for a 10 ticket pack, you can get it for even cheaper, like two euros 70. And the other benefit is if you don't want to pay for a gym subscription, a lot of pools actually have a gym. Uh, so you can go run on the treadmill for a little bit and then go for a swim. So I find that to be a nice uh, little extracurricular activity. Fair enough. Good, healthy advice there, Jen. I don't know whether you guys disagree with me. I think the point that I would pick out about if you're going to move to Paris is know that different parts of Paris are really quite different. I spent like the first couple of years in the 15th arrondissement over on the left bank, which was really kind of quiet, family orientated. It just felt very calm and a bit boring, can I say? Sorry to anybody who lives in the 15th. But then, you know, it was only about after four or five months, I discovered the 10th and the right bank and the 11th where all the young students were going out and it was much more lively and felt much more like home. And we kind of moved there as quick as we could. But Emma, different parts of arrondissements in Paris are really different. Uh, yes. And uh, what I always say to people is don't forget the suburbs that, well, you know, once you get out of Paris, it's much easier to find apartments. They're cheaper, but it's very well connected. I mean, I live, uh, mm. I live in the suburbs outside of Paris itself. I can be pretty much anywhere in the city by 40 minutes on the metro it's really nice i have a little bit more space so uh, don't discount the bonnier definitely do your research before you choose to move to paris is our general advice and that brings us to the end of this week's episode and indeed the end of this series we'll be back 
in two weeks with more Talking Points from France. First of all, a shout out to the unsung hero of Talking France, Reese Edwards, who produces this podcast. Thanks, Reese, And thanks, of course, to all our loyal listeners, especially those who've become members in recent weeks. It really does help this Talking France podcast continue and to continue to grow. Thanks to all those listeners who've left positive reviews. We really appreciate it. And again, if you want to leave some feedback, email us at news at the local.fr. And of course, word of mouth helps. Tell your friends about us, email them about us. The more listeners we can get, the better and the more chance we have of continuing to talk about France. Thanks to everybody.